Okay, Jesse, last week was a Shakespearean family dynasty drama. What's the story this time around? After a devastating triple homicide occurs, police discover that the family had been the target of terrifying threats of violence for months. Had the person who wrote the harassing messages made good on their threats? Or were the messages simply a red herring? I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about responsibility shirking, evil lurking, and a love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. It really does work, guys. So thank you so much for all of your ratings and reviews because I think it helps us stay on the charts and, you know, find Keeps Jesse bigger, happy. Bigger audience feeds the, the beast inside of me that needs external validation. So thank you for that. Also, if you are interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we're so excited to welcome a handful of new, absolutely incredible patrons. Welcome to Ruby R and Colette T. And Janice M and Molly W. Hi, guys. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Well, we have a listener request. I think it's a Patreon request as well. And I think you are going to be high on the Andy Rageometer today. Oh, shit. Do I need more wine? <laughs> you need more wine. <laughs> and then I'm going to jump right in. It was the fall of 1997, and 20-year-old Chris Coleman was bringing his girlfriend Sherry home for the very first time. Not that he told his parents, Ron and Connie, that Sherry was his very serious girlfriend. He instead told his very religious evangelist parents that Sherry was simply a friend, a friend that he was driving home to Chicago from Quantico, Virginia, where they had both been stationed in the military. From an outsider's perspective, it would seem like Chris and Sherry were a completely well-matched and compatible couple. They were both around the same age. They were both 20 or so. They were both Midwesterners originally with religious backgrounds, though Sherry was Catholic and she was more of a city girl, having been raised just outside of Chicago and then Tampa later on. And Chris was more of a country boy through and through, having grown up in rural southwestern Illinois, some 340 miles away from Chicago. They were both attractive, successful young military personnel. So who could possibly object to such a pairing? Well, it sounds like their parents. Yeah, Ron and Connie Coleman would. Though Chris claimed Sherry was just a friend, they did not even like their firstborn golden son boy being in her company. 
Ron Coleman would later call Sherry, quote, a worldly little girl, little short shorts, tattoo on her leg. He went on to say, not the person we thought he'd be with. Mr. Judgy Judgy Pants. Mm -hmm. We're going to get a lot of that this episode. So Chris was not exactly a hit with Sherry's brother, Mario, when he was introduced to him later that same day. To Mario, Chris seemed dull, vacant, devoid of personality. And he had a bit of a country twang. He knew he was from a more rural area. So Mario thought that Chris was a bit of a bumpkin. So everybody's being a little judgy in this situation. Altogether, he thought that this guy Chris was a little too boring and serious for his very peppy, spirited baby sister. Both families urged the young, you know, Marines, I think he was a Marine and she was actually originally in the Air Force, to take their time in the relationship and maybe not move so fast. They were still pretty young at this time. But by the time Chris and Sherry met one another's families, it was already too late. They were in love. And more than that, they were expecting a baby. Oh. Yes. Miss Short Shorts got a baby, a button in the oven. Yes. And so I also, I'm going to shout out my source today. It was One Last Kiss by Michael W. Cuneo. It was a very well-written book. One of the true crime books that reads more like a novel, which I always appreciate a very good flow of narrative that's less procedural. And then the only one thing I have is that he did say that they were more like 22 and 21 when they met each other's parents. But then later on in the book, it says they were both born in 1977. So in 1997, they would have been 20. So if there's any discrepancy in aging, guys, that's just it. I just picked up on that one thing. So maybe they were 21, 22, but still, whether they're 20, 21, 22, it's still pretty young. They're still at a, at a young age to be getting pretty serious at this point, though many people do it. Sadly, we will learn today that though (laughs) I think both families' delivery was kind of insulting about the new partner, the families perhaps were not wrong. After several happy years and two beautiful boys, the marriage would begin to collapse. At the same time, Chris would begin receiving threatening messages seemingly related to his job, which was doing security for a very high-profile, multi-millionaire televangelist. Oh. Yeah. So this episode is definitely going to be a doozy. A big thank you to Micah K, who recommended it. I might have talked to somebody else online. I'm, I said it like last week, too, about this. I'm so sorry, guys. Last week, at least I figured out it was during our Patreon watch party that it came up. So. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you to Micah. And I think, Micah, you also recommended this book, which was fantastic. Again, One Last Kiss by Michael Cuneo. But yeah, Andy, why I think this is going to be high on your rightometer is because of the nature of the crime. But also, there is a lot of thorny subjects in this. Uh, We're going to talk about hypocrisy. We're going to talk about betrayal of both love and faith. We are going to talk about terrifying threats and stalking and religion, and this all culminates in a shocking triple homicide. So there are a couple trigger warnings today. We will be briefly discussing 
some evidence of domestic violence. And unfortunately, also, there will be murder of children in this episode. So I want to put that right up front, even though I know it can be a bit of a spoiler for where this episode is going, just in case that is something that you don't like. And I'm totally okay with you saying, love murder, this isn't normally your thing. So I'd like to walk away from this one. But here we go. If you have to walk away, you can sign up for Patreon and listen to a ton of bonus content. <laughs> yes. Andy, actually, this shameless plug. This very night, we had a really good Andy episode that I was really enjoying. The problem with Andy doing it first and now we're doing this episode is that I was really enjoying just listening. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is nice. This is so great. I want to do this more often. So and I do. I get to do it every month now that Andy does her own Patreon episodes. So thank you, Andy. Which wasn't in the original business plan, may I say. It was not. I, I dragged her kicking and screaming into it. And now you are flourishing. Now that we've plugged the Patreon and prepared everyone for the worst, let's give a little more background on Sherry and Chris. Sherry was born on July 3rd, 1977, just outside of Chicago. She was the second child and only daughter of Angela and Don Weiss. Angela and Don had also been very young when they got married and settled down, even younger. Angela, who was from a big Italian family, was only 17 years old when they married and had Mario, her older brother. And she was 19 when Sherry arrived. And I think that Don was only a couple years older than Angela. So they were pretty young kids having kids. Angela was reportedly a very involved and hands-on PTA-type mom, and the kids had a very happy childhood. Sherry was a tiny thing. Even as an adult, she would not weigh much more than 95 pounds, which is, I think, where Chris's dad got that worldly little girl thing from, because she was a tiny, petite woman. But she had this very big personality. She was known as an energetic crowd pleaser. Her outgoing ways served her very well when the family moved to the Tampa, Florida area when Sherry was 10 years old. So I guess Mario had a harder time with it. He was 12. He really liked his neighborhood outside of Chicago where they would all play baseball in the streets together. They had a really big family on Angela's side. So it was hard for him when they relocated for a great job that Don got in Tampa, but Sherry actually had no problem completely fitting in right away. And I think it's because she was adorable. She was extroverted. It was just very easy for her to get along with people. She did Barbizon modeling. She played softball. She was a cheerleader. And she also participated in drama club. And it was at drama club that she met a girl named Tara Lintz, who was supposedly a great actress and one of the more popular girls in the school, and she would end up becoming Sherry's lifelong best friend. By all accounts, the two girls were vivacious teenage girls who had a blast running around the Tampa-St. Petersburg area together, which I feel like would be a very fun area to be in if you were a teenage girl or in your early 20s. So the two girls had a great time together. I guess that Tara had a more complicated background and family life. So Mario and Angela both said that they were a little concerned that she was best friends with Tara because she seemed like kind of a bad influence. But it seems like Sherry had a really good head on her shoulders. She had a great family. And so even if Tara was kind of like a girl from the wrong side of the tracks or whatever, it didn't matter to Sherry at all. And things were happening in Sherry's life at this point, too. When she was a senior in high school, 
her family was completely devastated by a surprise divorce, it sounded like. It sounded like essentially there was a lot of fighting in the relationship between Don and Angela. Angela wanted to keep the marriage together. And it sounded like Don was over it. Now, again, they got together very young. They had been together for 20 years at that point, I think married for 20 years. And Don participated in this book, One Last Kiss. To hear him tell it, it's more like the relationship just ran its course. And now with Sherry, their youngest, graduating, it seemed time for a different stage of life. But I don't know if that was entirely it because this seemed to really, really rock Mario and Sherry. And they chose their mother's side very strongly to the point where they changed their names back to Angela's maiden name. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And Sherry would end up being semi estranged from her father for many, many years after this. So I don't really know exactly what went down in the situation, but I do know that it shook Sherry to the core in a time that was supposed to be a very happy new beginnings time of her life. She's finishing high school, she's starting her adult life, and it might have been a little bit marred by this family situation that was going on and the divorce and Angela was moving back to the Chicago area. So there was a lot of upheaval and Sherry kind of surprised everyone because she decided to go into the Air Force and she had been this kind of like fun loving tiny little thing before and now she was very committed to being in the Air Force. So even though it seemed like an unusual choice, she did do very well and she ended up being stationed at a Marine Corps base in Quantico where she was essentially a military policewoman and she worked with the K-9 unit. So she was very good at handling dogs. She would patrol the base with her German shepherd. In February of 1997, she fell in love with a strapping Marine who also had been assigned to the K-9 unit and his name was Christopher Coleman. So Chris had been born to high school sweethearts Ron and Connie Coleman in March of 1977, which made him only you know, a handful of months older than Sherry. Chris was the oldest of three boys, and it definitely seemed like he was the favorite. It sounded like his two younger brothers were kind of aggressive. They might have caused a little bit more of a ruckus. It didn't sound like anything that we would think was totally out of the ordinary. It was like the youngest got caught with a girl in the church parking lot. But because Ron and Connie were so religious. Like, I think these transgressions seemed a little more serious than people who maybe aren't as conservative would take them. Yeah, of course. So Chris was the kid who never gave his parents any trouble. He didn't drink. He didn't have what they considered inappropriate relationships. He was just straight-laced, good kid, did well in sports. It sounded like he wasn't like a stellar student or a star athlete. But he always did just good enough to be considered good. He was decent at school. He was decent at sports. Everything he did, he did well enough. It was like really middle of the road, but never caused any problems. And most importantly to the Coleman's, he was committed to their faith. In the mid-1980s, Ron had actually quit his coal mining job to become a preacher at the Grace Bible Church, which was an offshoot of a nearby Baptist church. Now, these are very born-again, evangelical, speaking-in-tongues type of churchgoers. 
Chris himself, from a very early age, could speak in tongues. What? Like, I think at 10 years old, 9, 10 years old, he was already speaking in tongues. So he was very involved in his parents' church. He was very inspired by their marriage, by their faith. He enlisted in the Marines after high school graduation because he had met a recruiter who really, to him, exemplified loyalty and faith and service, all the things that his parents had taught him to value. And so he went into the Marines. And before he started with the K-9 unit, he worked on several presidential security details. And then when he was working with the K-9 unit and learning how to train police dogs, that was when he met Sherry. And he just really couldn't believe his luck because Sherry is beautiful. She's this little thing with this huge smile. I mean, she's objectively a good looking girl. And she had a very bright, sunny disposition. So they immediately hit it off. And a few months into their relationship, they discovered that Sherry was pregnant. They decided to get married and leave the Marines or the Air Force. So in their religion, are they allowed to have premarital sex? I don't think so. So I think that was why he wasn't telling his parents about their relationship. He was going to try to... And what he did was that he kind of like, what is it called when you like soft launch? Yeah, he's like soft launching her by being like, this is my friend. And then he called them later and they had eloped and said, you know, my friend Sherry, we got carried away and we decided to get married and we're in love. And don't you think that's great? And they did not think it's great. They did not at that time think Sherry was pregnant because they did not immediately tell either family that she was pregnant right away. Well, yeah, imagine, too, that two religious families wouldn't want a shotgun wedding, like a eloping that probably goes against their whole thing, too, right? It definitely rubbed them the wrong way. Ron later said, about this shotgun marriage that it had not been godly and that Chris was repentant and broken up over it. He told his parents, it just happened. We were in love. And so we decided to just do it in the moment. And I guess his mother was like, well, it's a lifetime now. So they were not pleased. And when they found out about the pregnancy, then they felt, well, this makes a lot more sense why he wouldn't introduce us to this girl and have a church wedding. And it didn't put any, I guess, pluses in Sherry's category. Yeah, but what's the other option? So, I mean, I don't know if there was going to ever be pleasing these people, to be honest. There really wasn't pleasing anyone in this situation. But there has to be one solution that they would feel is better than the other. No, the solution was that he didn't sleep with her at all and he didn't get involved with her yeah ever like went back in time so went to back in the future and got in the car and then went back (laughs) no six months they're saying if this little hussy hadn't come and seduced our man and then baby trapped him it would have been a different situation it's not on him you have to i would like you to suspend who you are in this episode and pretend you're an entirely different person that blames everybody else for the situations that your child finds themselves in. So the opposite type of person I am. Yes, exactly. Because that's what these people are. So they're not seeing this as, well, 
Chris had sexual relationships with this woman and they got pregnant and he's doing the right thing by marrying her and having that baby. They're looking at it like, well, she must have done something to seduce our innocent, beautiful child. And then, of course, he's going to do the right thing and marry her and have a baby. But that's only because she knew what a good person he was and probably an innocent virgin. Spoiler alert. Absolutely not. And then she baby dropped him. <laughs> that's basically what they were thinking. Like Sherry had a very uphill battle to try to win over her in-laws. But that didn't mean that she wasn't trying. She was trying. I know, but I was just going to say she shouldn't try. She, who cares? No, because she loves Chris and she does want a life with him. I mean, I do think that if you want harmony in your relationship to a certain point, you have to try to get along with your in-laws. And it was important to Chris that they get along. Within reason. <laughs> And he's like, cut them off. They're out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think Chris would have ever had any sort of life. His parents were big figures for him. So that just wasn't an option. So Sherry had been raised Catholic, but not super duper religious Catholic. It was like she had been confirmed, but it was more like what her mother's family did and less like that it was ingrained in their very being, unlike Chris's family. So it was like kind of a religious family, but they were more, I mean, I even like, you know, Nathaniel's grandfather is a Methodist minister and we celebrate Christmas like crazy, but it's more separated from a lot of the very religious rites and more about tradition. And family. And family and gatherings. And that's what it it was more like for Sherry's family. It was about togetherness and, and the ritual and all of that. Whereas Chris's family, it was their life. I mean, he quit his job to become a preacher at some point. Connie became a preacher at the same church. So this was their entire existence. And because it was so important to Chris, Sherry decided to convert. So she moved to his hometown with his parents so that they could have the baby near his parents because it was so important to him. Very considerate. She's being extremely considerate about this. She converted to their specific version of evangelical Christianity. She was baptized. She went to every church service. And she was talking in tongues herself within a few months. I mean, she was all in, all in. But even with doing all of that, it seemed like they still didn't like her. They were just never going to really accept her. Not even after. That's what I mean. Like, then what's the point? Like, if you're bending over backwards and doing everything that you can imagine, like giving yourself to this other family and this other religion to try to... Well, everyone at Grace Bible Church said that they really liked Sherry. She just seemed like a breath of fresh air and that she was wonderful and she volunteered and she had this big, effusive, bubbly personality. But Connie would talk badly about her behind her back. So mean. It seems like, so I think it was the author, Michael Cunha, who made this metaphor, but it honestly might have been Ron and Connie themselves, was Ron would preach about how some people in the flock who are listening to him preach are sheep and some are goats. And some people follow the Lord and some people speak out about it. And some people are like, they're like secretly to undermine you or something. And 
what he was basically saying is that the good people should be sheep. They should be the people that are listening and taking things in and moving as a group or something. Like he's like saying it in a way. And what the author Michael Cuneo says is that Sherry was just never going to be a sheep. And that was clear. Even though she's doing all these things, Sherry was still not a pushover. She still expressed her opinion about things. She still made her own mark on the church. And she was not somebody who is necessarily going to just fall in line. And she made her opinions known to Chris, which I think that that pissed them off more than anything because they really did think that Chris was somehow so exceptional and beyond reproach all of the time. Throughout this entire story, we're going to keep coming back to that, that they, their son can do no wrong. So basically, Sherry was losing this battle. So their golden boy also just kept getting more golden in their eyes. The Coleman's idolized this woman, Joyce Mayer. So they had actually liked Joyce even before she was super duper famous. She was somebody who came into preaching and preached their specific type of Christianity. And she's a really interesting person. She had a rough life. She was sexually abused by her father. She ended up marrying right out of high school. And then her husband cheated on her left and right. She found herself divorced, miserable. She started hitting up the bars. And she would talk about all this in her sermons, like about where she was in her life and how she'd gone to the bars and she'd slept around for a little bit. And then eventually she met her now husband, her second husband. And she was coming home one day from the beauty parlor and was in her car praying. And all of a sudden, she felt the Lord's message, and she was called to be a preacher, apparently. And Joyce was very charismatic, so she very quickly found her own following. She ended up starting her own ministry. By 1993, she had a radio show that was syndicated all over the Midwest, and by 2003, she also had a very popular television show. So by the time Chris Coleman met Joyce and came into her employ, which I guess he might have met her when he was younger because they would also go yeah. to her conferences, of course. But like by the time he was like older and he was applying for a job with her, she was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And she was on Time Magazine's list of most influential evangelicals in the United States. Joyce had a very down-to-earth demeanor about her. Which probably made her more approachable. So much more approachable. And that's why she was saying, like, I've been through this. I've gone through this. I've had troubles in my life. And then things switch for me, and they can for you too. And it was a little controversial. It still is. And I think that there's still conversations now. Andy and I do not practice Christianity. So, you know, we don't feel fully equipped to always talk about these things. And we've talked about it. You and I have talked about it because obviously the people that we are talking about when we're in a true crime episode are obviously not the bastions of, <laughs> of any faith. They're not going to be on a true crime show if they're doing everything right by their religion and by the book. Yeah. Or even like most things, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. A lot of bad actors. So we don't want anyone to get the wrong idea because we did have an exchange with a fan about bashing Christianity, which is not true. We are bashing individuals who do not practice their faith. 
And who take advantage of their faith and vulnerable people within their faith. Exactly. And those those abuses should be called out. No matter what the religion is or what we're talking about. Yes. Because it could be a plumber. It could be a religion. It could be an actor. It's all the things. Yeah. Any abuse of power or abuse of a power structure in order to keep any type of person down or subjugated is a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And so... This is about Joyce and her version of this type of preaching, prosperity preaching, is a little controversial. And it's controversial among Christians as well, that some Christians really don't know if there's a place for this type of preaching, even among themselves, obviously. And how the author Michael Cunio broke this down about what prosperity gospel is In his book, One Last Kiss, I'm just going to use his words to kind of explain it to people who aren't very familiar because I I really, really wasn't, to be honest. He said, it's kind of simple. If you're a born-again Christian, they say, you're entitled to worldly wealth. You're entitled to the fruits of the earth. God wants you to prosper. He wants you to amass material riches. All that you have to do is make a positive confession of faith and God will take care of the rest. Now, that's all fine. You believe in God, God will take care of you. That's a fine message. But how should you go about making this positive confession? Well, it's simple. The preachers say, just send them money. Make a donation to their ministries. They call this sowing a seed of faith. Send them money and in due time, you'll reap a harvest of financial plenitude. You'll get back tenfold what you send, perhaps a hundredfold. Who can tell? The sky is the limit. And the problem with this is that it encourages some people who maybe can't afford to give to give more. And it also demonizes the poor or blames poor people for being poor because clearly they're not faithful enough. That if you are faithful enough, God rewards you with material wealth. You also can't guarantee that God is going to reward you with tenfold what you're donating. Like, that's just a bold-faced lie. Like, you can't. How do you know? There's no, again, it's kind of, there's no backing it up. There's no better bureau business of God because it's like, well, maybe you didn't pray hard enough. Maybe you didn't give enough. Maybe you have to give even more. And that's where this message gets controversial. So Joyce always would use her personal story. And I think Michael Cuneo was going to some of these events, these conferences that she would have. And she told a Detroit audience, if you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. I'm living now in my reward. And so that was also an excuse for how she has a $10 million private jet, how she has a $20 million corporate office, how she has multiple vacation homes and luxury cars. I mean, it's very... I just keep bringing it up, but righteous gemstones, you know, the lifestyle. Now there's a compound and everything. So the Post-Dispatch reported that at Joyce's conferences and these sermons, there would be like these giant screens. So she's up there preaching. On the Jumbotron? Yeah, the Jumbotron would be saying on each side of her, buy $500 worth of product and get $100 free. So, I mean, this is, she is selling and it's all tax-free because it's a church. So it's bananas, as you can imagine. Someone that is clearly striking a chord with many people around the world who is deeply beloved and potentially extremely controversial 
would need a security detail. And this is where Chris Coleman came in. So Chris first began working for Joyce when he was hired to train a guard dog because he had had the experience with the canine unit. And he did so well in that position that he was hired full-time as one of her security guards. And he continued to rise through the ranks. So by late 2000, he was actually appointed head of security for the entire ministry. And he did have to apply, like officially apply for this position. And apparently there was a spiritual criteria for this position. And Chris wrote on his application that both he and his wife, Sherry, were born again. They both spoke in tongues, even noting the years in which they began speaking in tongues, and that he did not drink, he did not smoke, he did not do drugs, and he had no other aberrant habits or issues that would become an issue for her ministry. Now, fidelity was also very important to Joyce, and it was not unheard of for her to fire someone for being unfaithful to their spouse or even just initiating divorce seemingly with no reason and not trying to reconcile the relationship. Okay. But this was no problem for Chris because at this time when he is taking on this position, he and Sherry were happily married. Sherry even worked part-time for Joyce's ministry herself. She would do several different fill-in type positions. Two of her very good friends worked in different departments for Joyce. So she was very involved and believed in Joyce's message, was very proud that Chris had this job. But throughout the years, she began to get a little, I guess, frustrated. She had younger kids and now Joyce really relied upon Chris. So she had a lot of conferences throughout the country and even internationally, she would do international mission trips. And because he was the head of security and she trusted him the most, he would often go ahead of her to these locations and scout them for any security risks, set up plans of where she was going to come in, where she was going to exit, how they were going to get her out of the building, and then obviously accompany her to all of these events. So that means that he's spending... Yeah, but would he also accompany her? (laughs) Well, that comes up later, maybe. So... He was just spending more time with Joyce, who was married to her second husband and had two grown sons than he was with his own family at a certain point. But I think Chris was really enjoying this position. He kept getting raises. He kept making more money. He appreciated Joyce, her message. So he found like that he was making money. He was living in his faith. And he had a certain amount of power and prestige by being her right-hand man. And some of his coworkers said that as his salary and his position rose, so did his ego. Ugh. And so he became smug. He became arrogant. He would barely deign to speak to coworkers that he found were beneath him, beneath his position within the ministry. In Love Island terms, he became muggy. (laughs) Apparently, I haven't watched the UK version. (laughs) Season 10, I'm going to get after it. But behind his back, coworkers criticized him for his ego and his condescending attitude. But however, none of these people would say anything to his face because he had Joyce's ear. And he was in a position of power and privilege within this ministry. And so even though he was acting like a douche, 
they were like, ugh, whatever. We just have to kind of like grin and bear it with this terrible guy. And now Sherry was really grateful. I mean, I think by 2008, he was making a good six-figure salary. And she believed in the message of the church again. But it was just really hard. I mean, raising two kids on your own. She's trying to figure out what she wants with her life, too. Obviously, they also got together pretty young. No one wants a partner ego-tripping. No. So in January of 2008, she told Chris that she wanted him to really strongly consider leaving the ministry. She was over the constant travel. She was over doing all the things with the boys alone. And when he was home, he was a very dedicated father. So it was Gavin and Garrett. Garrett was the older son. Gavin was the younger one. It seemed like Garrett, the older son, had more of Chris's personality. He was a little bit more serious, a little bit more introspective. And Gavin was just like this little ham bone that he had more of Sherry's personality. He was very outgoing. He liked to make people laugh. And he was like a real trip, it sounds like. And he was. He would take them to their sports. He knew the other parents. He would try to be as involved as he possibly could. But he just, you know, he was busy. He traveled a lot. And so it seems like for a little bit, Chris really did consider leaving the ministry. By now, the family had relocated to a subdivision called Columbia Lakes in Columbia, Illinois. And Sherry had made really amazing friends in this area. Like I said, she had two friends who worked for Joyce Meyer as well, although they worked in different departments. And then she had a really wonderful neighbor named Vanessa who had a son named Brandon who was like right in between, I think, the boys' ages. Okay. So the three of them palled around together constantly. And she just wanted Chris to be a part of it. So it seems like for a little while, he really did consider it. One option was he was considering maybe starting his own video surveillance company. And then another thing was that he loved to work out. So he's like, maybe I'll open my own gym. So he was really thinking about what he could do after Joyce. But when it was kind of floated that he might leave, she gave him yet another raise. And so he was like, I don't know. I like my job. I like what I do. I provide really well for Sherry. Why is she making this an issue? And so at this point, I think the cracks in the marriage were really starting to show. Because he is not listening to what she needs, which is more presence of her husband. And he feels that she's not listening to what he needs and what this family needs, which is we're not going to make as much money with any of the other ideas you have for me to do. And I'm taking care of this family and I really like my job. And you're going to force me to leave this really good paying job that I enjoy just because you're upset. So there was a lot of miscommunication going on. And it sounds like there was also maybe some reckless spending on Sherry's side, or at least Chris was complaining of it. By May of 2008, Chris was out. He took the boys to a movie with a friend who also had boys around the same age. And afterwards, he said that he was so sick of Sherry spending too much money that he had to drive this old clunker, even though he made over $100,000 a year because she was constantly putting them in debt with her spending. And her friends did say that Sherry loved to shop. That was an outlet for her. I would guess that maybe emotionally she's not getting what she needs from this relationship. So obviously, yeah. Yeah. Like a little shopping is okay. It's a little shopping therapy. And it's also, I, I feel like in some ways, if he's paying the bills at the end of the day, it's a way to get his attention. Yeah. Whether she's thinking about that or not. 
So this was, it seems like a problem in their relationship. I just can't imagine like not being able to communicate with my partner while taking care of our two young kids and not being able to like see each other's points of view. Shopping seems like the least harmful thing that you can do. Yes. And I think that Cherry's complaint was that he very much shut down. He was moody. He was withdrawn. Sometimes he was home, but it didn't even seem like he was home. He wasn't present even when he was present. Yeah, which is almost worse, to be honest. So, I mean, Dan travels a lot for work. He doesn't as much anymore, but you can imagine, like, imagine if he was home, but he wasn't even home. No. At least Dan is very present when he's home. Yeah, he's amazing. But yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to travel anymore because it's just you miss so much, you know, with the kids when you're gone. And by now, by 2008, they have already, I think, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old at that point. So you're missing a lot. And you, I imagine at that time, you start feeling like, wow, time is really running out. There's only eight more years that they're going to live in my household for the oldest at that point. So there's a lot of miscommunications going on here. But it seems like there was also probably something much darker going on as well. So this is where the trigger warning for domestic abuse comes in. Sherry's neighbor, Vanessa, recalled a time in the late summer of 2008 that she convinced Sherry to come get in the hot tub with her. So apparently they had a hot tub. The little boys, of course, loved going in the hot tub. And Vanessa had Sherry and the boys over and they were all getting into their swimsuits, going in the hot tub. And she's like, come on, come on, Sherry, you come in too. She was such a tiny little thing. She had a bunch of bathing suits. And she seemed a little reluctant. And she finally did. And she saw that she had these very deep, dark, large bruises, especially on her legs and thighs, but also on her upper arms. And she said that it did not occur to her at the time that it was Chris because they thought they were a perfect couple. They referred to them as Ken and Barbie. And so it didn't even go into her head. She just thought it was odd. And then she mentioned something to her fiance, like, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, she does wear long sleeves and pants a lot, even in the summer. And I had never really thought of that before. So that was something that was kind of in the back of her head. But when she asked Sherry about it, like, is there something we should be talking about? Should we be worried about something? It's great that she asked her. Yeah, Sherry just kind of totally brushed it off. Like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, I'm just clumsy. It's fine. But unfortunately, Vanessa wasn't talking to her other friend, Megan. Now, Megan worked for Joyce. And Megan would later report that around Memorial Day weekend in 2008, she had received a text from Sherry that said, quote, Chris is gone right now, but he just beat me up. I'm okay, though. So Megan immediately called Sherry and said, get your boys, get their bags, get to my house right now. We're going to get you out of that situation. Oh, my God. And Sherry said, he's left. He's gone on a Joyce trip. So he's gone. Like, I have nothing. I'm not in danger. And Megan pushed Sherry for a while to make her know that that wasn't all right, that she needed to get help, that Megan was there. But after that one text message exchange, Sherry completely backtracked the entire thing and it never came up again. And if she ever brought it up, she was shut down. And Megan wasn't friends with Vanessa. So they weren't able to Talk about compare it. notes. Yeah. 
So Sherry had four best friends. She had her three best friends in Columbia, Illinois, who were Megan and another woman who both worked at Joyce Myers but did not work together. And then they had Vanessa, her neighbor. And then, of course, she had her best friend, Tara, who was still living in Tampa. So she certainly didn't talk to the other women. And I guess that Tara was still her number one friend on MySpace. Remember your top eight? Top eight, yep. Yeah, Tara was the top one right in that first box. You know I'd be reaching out to everyone you talk to. Yes, you would because you don't you, – <laughs> in a very, like, loving way, you don't have boundaries when it comes to your friend's safety and well-being. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, yes, you served my friend at Bread Alone last week. Do you, <laughs> do you by chance know if she's okay? <laughs> you would. You absolutely would. <laughs> My helicopter bestie. <laughs> so she's also talking to Tara about what's going on. But, you know, Tara's in Tampa. Well, by October of 2008, it felt like there might not be any repairing of this marriage. Chris apparently burst into Vanessa's home. She's the neighbor. And he started talking to Vanessa and her fiance about how he is going to divorce Sherry, how... She's spending too much money and she's getting in the way of his career and the path he feels like God put him on. She's trying to derail it. He is feeling all of these things. So Vanessa is shocked because even though she had some weird suspicions about the bruises, she never had any indication that it was true. There was never any indication yeah, from Sherry it was just that that was the case. Yeah. yeah, it was just like, it's like, well, that's kind of odd. Let's like keep that in mind. And so this was the first indication that they were anything less than perfect. And she went to talk to Sherry and Sherry was hysterical. And essentially Sherry said, I don't know what's going on. This is late October, early November. She said out of the blue, he just wants to get divorced. I will do anything to keep our marriage together, which I'm sure is also somehow triggering for her given her parents' situation. Yeah. Yeah, that she was not speaking to her father because of of what happened with the divorce. And also, of course, they are in this faith that promotes fidelity and not getting divorced, obviously. And so she was crying to me and she said, I will do anything. I will stop spending money. I want to go to marital counseling. I'm not just going to let him walk away from our marriage. I don't know what's going on. But she said, I'll, you know, I'll stop telling him to leave his job. I'll do whatever it takes. But it didn't seem like any of her compromises were working. It was kind of like the same way with his parents, how no matter what she she did, she could not make them like her or love her or respect her. And now, no matter how much she tries to connect with Chris, he's not responding. He is becoming more and more remote. He is sleeping in the basement. He is not being romantic or even sexual with her. They're having no intimacy. She began to suspect that Chris was having an affair. She briefly suspected, as you hinted at earlier, that maybe he was having an affair with Joyce. They were together all the time. He keeps her safe. I feel like that's a very easy relationship. Whitney Houston, Kevin Cosner, the bodyguard. Well, that was giving. not... It, yeah, that was not what was going on, at least to my knowledge. But their marriage was in trouble, and she was going to push on it. She knew that Joyce did not approve of her employees 
just getting divorced willy-nilly. So she went to one of Joyce's sons who worked as a higher up in the organization and essentially confessed that their relationship was in trouble and that her husband wanted a divorce. And they were shocked, of course. And I think this is also like her feeling out whether it has anything to do with Joyce because she'd find out if she starts like throwing it out there. Well, they seem completely surprised and they were like, well, of course, like we are going to talk to Chris and we will get you guys enrolled in the marital counseling portion. And there was another church that Sherry belonged to that she was very passionate about. And she had worked as a secretary for this church. And she spoke to her pastor there who put them on a prayer list. And she was very open about their marital issues. I mean, to the point where Literally, when they went to a church service, there was like a call for couples that are experiencing marital discord to come up and receive a special blessing. And she got Chris to even go up there and get the special blessing. So this is not a secret. She's involving his work, which is obviously not making him happy. No, yeah. He wanted to deal with this without bringing in Joyce and his job. So... All of this is complicated, but essentially what Sherry was saying was, I'm not going to go out without a fight. I'm going to save this marriage. But to make things a lot, lot worse, the family began receiving mysterious, highly threatening messages via email and eventually in letter hand delivered to their mailbox. So on Friday, November 14th, 2008, Chris, Joyce Meyer, her husband, as well as their two adult sons who worked for the ministry, all received an email from an account called destroychris at gmail.com. Okay. The subject line, which again, there's some very salty language in this, and they're using the full four-letter word. F Chris's family, they are dead. Tell Joyce to stop preaching the bullshit or Chris's family will die. If I can't get to Joyce, then I will get to someone else close to her. And if I can't get to him, then I will kill his wife and kids. Um. So this person went on to say, I know Joyce's schedule. So then I know Chris's schedule. If Joyce doesn't quit preaching the bullshit, then they will all die. During the Houston conference, I will kill them all as they sleep. If I don't that time, then I will kill them during the book tour or on the trip to India, which is all upcoming events they had going on. So scary. And specific. Two minutes later, another email came through that said, go to hell, your family is done. That same day, two additional emails came through and they were all saying basically the same thing. It was a lot of F words, a lot of things that Joyce had done wrong, a lot of things that Chris, like, had done wrong, but kind of nebulous, like just because he was supporting Joyce. And these emails also suggested that the sender was someone who maybe felt swindled by Joyce. Part of the email said, tell that bitch Joyce to give my money back and talk to me and this will all stop. Until then, everyone will die, starting with Chris's wife and kids. But no one knows who it is. No one knows who it is. So how is she supposed to talk to you? Exactly. And he's not making it clear and in Chris's line of work over the years, he had worked for Joyce for a very long time at this point. He had forcibly removed quite a few people, whether they were too obsessed with Joyce, like way too into her, or there were, you know, a handful of angry ex-followers who didn't appreciate her anymore or the money maybe they had given her. Or lost everything or... Or lost everything. Or even, you know, there were some people that felt like they were 
familiar with Joyce and then Chris rebuffed them, like, get out of here. And then they felt betrayed by both Joyce and Chris. Like, who's this guy bouncing me out of my own church, essentially? Yeah, they're mugged off, you know? Yeah. So there was a lot of potential people that this could be based on what Joyce did and what Chris did for Joyce. But Chris did the right thing. He immediately went to the police. And so he's like, we are not going to keep this in-house. Let's go to the police for your safety for my family's safety, we have to report this. And so Joyce's headquarters was in Missouri. So where she lived in in Jefferson County, Missouri, and where the office was based, was they notified those police. And they also obviously notified the Columbia, Illinois PD so that they could keep an eye on Chris's family, especially because he's nervous now that he does have to go out of town for these things. And he's worried that there's somebody that's going to be preying upon his family. I mean, he might not be getting along with Sherry right now, but he doesn't want her to die. He doesn't want his children to die. So he goes to the police. The police say, this is alarming. We are going to have patrols come by your house, especially when you're gone. We'll take care of that for you. And just let us know if you receive any more of these emails. A lot of times they're just crackpots. There's somebody who wants to get a rise out of somebody and it it won't come to anything. But of course, we'll take it seriously. So just let us know if any other threats come through, essentially. So on January 2nd, 2009, Chris unfortunately returned to the police. And this time he had a disturbing letter. And it was seemingly written because of the language patterns by the same person. And of course, if it's in his mailbox... They know where he lives. They know where he lives and they were close enough to hand deliver it because it was not sent through the mail. So, of course, this is terrifying. Doubly terrifying was that the letter writer suggested through lots of F-bombs and other really bad language that he would be killing Chris's wife and kids while Chris was in India from January 15th to 18th. So, it's like, now they have a specific date. So, of course, the police basically just gave them a lookout for this period of time. And thankfully, nothing happened. The police also did not notice anyone lurking around. So unfortunately, on one side, they didn't get any suspects. But on the other side, the family was safe and that's all that matters. So the letter writer was silent for a few months, but then another letter surfaced in the Coleman's mailbox on Monday, April 27th, 2009. Again, Chris immediately went to the police, and this letter read, F you, I am giving you the last warning. You have not listened to me, and you have not changed your ways. I have warned you to stop traveling and to stop carrying on with this fake religious life of stealing people's money. You think you are so special to do what you do protecting or thinking you are protecting her. She is a bitch and not worth you doing it. Stop today or else. I know your schedule. You can't hide from me ever. I'm always watching. I know when you leave in the morning. I know when you stay home. I saw you leave this morning. I will be watching. You better stop traveling and doing what you are doing. And then in capital letters, this is my last warning. Your worst nightmare is about to happen. It's kind of like, remember the watcher? Yeah. That we no, talked it's same about? vibes for sure. But except way more threatening in my opinion. Way more threatening. And it's direct and they know very specific details. Yeah. It's not like don't move into this house or like there's people who hear you in the walls. It's like I will kill your family. Yeah. So one of Coleman PD's homicide detectives was this guy, Detective Justin Barlow, and he just happened to live right in the same subdivision as the Coleman's. So it essentially was like Kitty Corner, and 
from where he lived, from his Justin Barlow's three-year-old son's bedroom window, he got a direct view of the mailbox and basically the walkway up to the Coleman's house. Amazing. So he said, okay, well, this is getting really serious. And luckily, I am literally just down the street from you and from my son's room. I can rig up a video camera and I will have it on 24-7 to your mailbox so we can catch this person. He says this to Chris. Yes, he says this to Chris. And beyond that, he's also like, here's my cell number. Here's my home number. If you are ever in a situation where you immediately need help, like obviously call 911, but also call me at any time. Yeah. Anything feels weird. I am three houses down or whatever it is. This obviously makes the Coleman's feel a little bit better, but they did have to change a lot of their lifestyle. Like they hadn't had drapes in places that they were trying to get. After this meeting with Justin, even though he was in security, they hadn't had like a full security rig in their house. So he's like, I'm a security guy. I know what to do. I just never thought I needed it for my house before. So I'm going to invest in a full system and like, like I do for Joyce, essentially, and do it for my house too. So he told Justin that. And I guess that they were also like following up for the next week about which system is the best and how to get it online. And Justin Barlow was like, if you need the state police's help or anything, I'll tell them that you need immediate assistance. And you know, if there was anything they could do to help with the cost or how the police could get access to this, if they're really in danger, then he was like, just network with me. So it was amazing that they had this incredible detective in their neighborhood who was willing to help them. So that had all gone down on April 27th. On Monday, May 4th, life was business as usual for the most part. Though later, Joyce Meyer would say that Chris had taken the day off of work kind of unexpectedly, which is not like him. So he had called in that morning on Monday, May 4th, and he had taken the day off. Garrett and Gavin had gone to school. And then when they got home, they went over to neighbor Vanessa's home, which I guess they did most days because they loved playing with Brandon at their home. Okay. And every year, the boys would have a sleepover on May 4th because Garrett's birthday, who I think he had just turned 11 on April 30th, and Gavin was nine at this point, and Brandon's was May 5th. So at one year, many years ahead, like when they first moved there, they had done like a May 4th sleepover to wake up on Brandon's birthday together, and it became a tradition. So Vanessa fully assumed that the boys were sleeping over that night, even though it's a Monday because it's just part of their tradition, and then they just go to school together. Because of this, Vanessa was surprised when Chris told the boys that they could not sleep over and that they had to be home by 8.30 because this just seemed odd. This was not anything that they had done in the past few years. And he had the boys tell her, like, he didn't even really talk to her about it. He just, the boys came back and they were like, dad says we can't, we have to be home by 8.30. So she didn't know what the problem was, but obviously at this point she knew that there was problems in the marriage, so she was not going to be messing with anybody's home situation. So the family got snow cones together the boys played some video games together before bed, and then they said their prayers with their parents. Apparently, Sherry and Chris watched part of a movie and then switched to a basketball game. They watched Batman Returns. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the Penguin. Danny DeVito. Yes, the Penguin, the Danny DeVito. And they watched part of that. Then they watched to like a Lakers game. And at some point, they just went to bed. So it seemed like this is something that normal any house in America night 
Except for the fact that there was going to be something that would happen at some point in the early hours of the next day that would be beyond heinous and a shocking, shocking triple homicide would occur. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Handy, one thing that is true about adulting is that it feels like there's always something to deal with next. Absolutely. It's career, then it's relationships, then it's kids. And what really scares me is that one day it will be our kids' careers and even scarier, their relationships. Yep. Whatever challenge you're dealing with, there are tools out there to help you navigate it. If you've ever considered therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and that means it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and totally suited to your schedule. Absolutely. I know at times in the past when I've been going through big periods of change and transition, I think that the largest thing holding me back from actually taking the time to find someone to talk to was how daunting it seemed to try to find someone near me, to schedule it, to get to the appointment. Sometimes when you need help, that whole process can just feel so overwhelming. And what I think is great about BetterHelp is that it really breaks down those barriers. 100%. I've gone through some of the same things. And with BetterHelp, all you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire, and then you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, you're always able to switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Therapy really isn't just something for people who have suffered from major trauma. It's an empowering tool that can help all of us be our best selves. So let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lovemurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash lovemurder. On Tuesday, May 5th, 2009, Detective Barlow received a call from Chris Coleman at 6.43 in the morning. He said that he had been at the gym and he was starting to get alarmed. Now, we know Chris is alive, so this is not looking good. It's not looking good for Chris. Prior to this, you could have almost thought that Sherry was writing these emails, right, to get him to quit. I could have thought that it was like she wants him to quit his job, so she's making threats up that if he doesn't quit his job and stop working for her. But in any case, now we know Chris is alive. So Chris calls Detective Barlow at 6.43 in the morning. He said he's been at the gym he has been a little alarmed because usually by now, Sherry is up, she's getting the boys up, and she's making breakfast, getting them ready for school, and she's not responding to his texts, and she's not responding to his calls. He's being way too communicative about this situation. But, I mean, Justin Barlow knows that he has been the recipient of these threats, so maybe he's a little on edge, and he's a security guy. But if he's a little on edge, then why are you going to the gym at 6 a.m.? I mean, I don't know. That's when people go to the gym. I don't know. If you're actually on edge that your family is going to get murdered by some random person who is like dropping shit off at your house, like, I'm sorry. I feel like I would be on high alert at the door hiding, looking for this motherfucker to come drop off this letter. But there is no one because it's him. <laughs> okay, we're going to go. <laughs> you can you erase that. To yourself. You can erase. No, I'm not erasing anything. <laughs> Let the record show that Andrea Verbanscreen <laughs> thinks it's Chris Coleman who's done the terrible thing. But let me continue with what happened, okay? Yes, go ahead. Carry on, and my not, love. And not what you would do if you were the head bodyguard for <laughs> multimillionaire super preacher 
and you are protecting your family that you had straight out of the Marines when you were 21 years old. Fine, fine. Touche. <laughs> because you're exactly like this person. Carry on. So he said, you, you know, you told me that I could call whenever. It's probably nothing. I'm just overthinking this. But could you just go over? I'm at the bridge right now. So he knows exactly where he is and where this bridge to this other county is and where the gym was. So he's like, I'm at the bridge, so I should be home soon, and I'll meet you there. But if you could just get over there and check, that'd be amazing. And so Detective Barlow says, of course. He jumps out of bed. He gets stressed. And so he goes over. So he walks over, and he tries to ring the doorbell. And nobody comes. So he rings it again. And he knows that Chris has been trying to reach his family, so nobody's coming to the door. Nobody can reach Sherry on the phone. So he starts walking around the house to see if there's any obvious signs of entry and the basement window is open it doesn't appear that anyone kicked it in there's no broken glass or anything it just looks open it's just open yeah which is weird it's weird that's not a good sign especially for somebody in chris's situation working in security knowing that there's a risk he wouldn't have just left his basement window open so at that point detective barlow is kind of getting nervous because chris isn't back yet and where he said he was was seven minutes from the home so he knows it's only seven minutes so he's like it's been like over 10 minutes at that point he's like where is he also this is open there might still be somebody in the house if god forbid the worst happened so he calls for backup at that point and luckily where i think the police station was it was pretty close because somebody arrived on the scene extremely quickly it was a sergeant named sergeant don john so barlow and don john at this point chris is still not around so Don John beat Chris to the house. Yeah, that's weird. That's weird. Like, are you just hiding out at the bridge? Yeah, they don't know what's going on with him at this point. Because also they were thinking, if it was me, this is my family, I would be speeding my ass off to no get home kidding. to my family. No kidding. Not taking the long route. Yeah, the scenic route. So Barlow and Don John do go in through the basement window. And the basement's totally clear. There's no sign of forced entry. There's nothing going on in the basement. So they start going up through the house to see if there's anything on the first floor. And upon opening the door to the first floor, they immediately know that something is wrong. They could smell fresh spray paint before they could even see it. They said that they started doing like a tactical breathing because the smell of the spray paint was so strong. On the walls of the kitchen spray-painted over-framed photos of the family. Somebody had spray-painted F-U, but with the real four-letter word. I am always watching. I saw you leave. Then they walked into the living room. In the living room, there was another message. It said, fuck you, bitch. Punished. And then they looked up the stairs, and going up the stairs, the assailant, who could potentially be in this, the house, even though the house was very quiet, had spray painted, you have paid. So this is all written also in bright red paint. So terrifying. So it is terrifying. It is bright red paint. It's dripping. It's fresh looking. They can still smell it. How did the guy that lived across the street not catch this? Well, I mean, he's not, he doesn't have it like on a motion detector. Like anyone who's walking their dog is going to set it off. He has it there to review though. Yeah. He hasn't reviewed it at this point because he just went over to the house. He woke up out of those, like he was sleeping and he woke up and he went over there. And now he's realizing that obviously something yeah. really, really bad happened. 
Sergeant Don John later said that he felt a full chill of evil I'm sure. go through his body. At 6.56, this is only 13 minutes since Chris called Barlow. But still twice as long as it should have taken him to get home. Exactly. Another officer arrived to help because he was called in. Because they're like, this is going to be a whole scene. We need, we need backup now. He arrived at the same time that Chris finally got there, which was about 13 to 14 minutes after he had called. So again, twice as long as it was supposed to take him to get home. So Barlow at that point ordered Chris to stay in his driveway. He said, don't come inside. I can't talk to you about it right now. Just don't come in. You must stay out because I'm still checking out the place. And then the three officers went back in and they started going up the stairs. So this is where the trigger warning for violence against children comes in, sadly. The three men split up and they each went into one of the bedrooms that was upstairs. Barlow went first into Garrett's room, 11-year-old Garrett. And at first, it looked like the boy was sleeping and there was a bright red splotch on his bedspread, which immediately his first thought was that it was blood. It turns out it was spray paint. But unfortunately, Garrett was unmistakably dead. His skin was gray. His lips were blue. He had no pulse. He was still lying in his bed and there were ligature marks on his neck that suggested he had been strangled to death, potentially while he was sleeping. They believe that the splotch was obviously from the spray paint and that potentially Garrett might have been murdered actually last because it seems like the killer had run out of spray paint, like he was going to spray something and then it ran out. Meanwhile, the other officer is in nine-year-old Gavin's room. The little boy was also found deceased wearing his Spider-Man pajamas. And the officer who found him said that he had a little boy around the same age who had the exact same pajamas. Yeah, can you, like, for that officer? No, all three of these men had children, and I don't think all of them were of exactly a similar age, but they all... It doesn't matter. Yeah, they all had kids, so this was... A deeply affecting scene. It was horrific. It seemed like Gavin might have woken up and put up a struggle with the offender. And he had also been strangled to death using some sort of ligature. And the person who had done this to him had also spray painted in this red paint, fuck you, over the child's bed. A child. Yeah. In the master bedroom, they discovered Sherry, who was hardly bigger than a child herself. Like even Vanessa talked about meeting her for the first time. She was on the trampoline with the kids. And she literally asked the boys where their mother was because she thought it was like another child or a babysitter. Yeah. She's so little. Sherry was a tiny little thing. So Sherry was completely nude. She was face down on the bed and her hair was kind of falling in, in front of her face. And when she was touched, Cherry's body was completely cold to the hand. And when they went to, like, turn her over, her whole body moved together stiffly because she was already in full rigor mortis. Yeah, which how long did you say? He said he had been at the gym for an hour. Yeah. But, like, rigor mortis is usually, what, 12 hours? Six hours? We don't know exactly. I think it depends on a lot of variables, 
but also she had evidence of liver mortis as well, which is essentially when the blood is pooling. Whoa. Down. Yeah. So where she's lying, it's already pooling, which they do believe that the killer killed Sherry first and then Gavin and then Garrett likely. Hours ago, though. Yes. It looked like all three of the victims were strangled to death using a ligature, but it also appeared that Sherry had fought for her life, that she had probably woken up during the attack and then managed potentially to maybe get the attacker off of her because she was also beaten badly throughout the face. And it seems like the murderer had beaten her to get her back into a submissive spot and then killed her. So, of course, these three detectives and police officers are horrified. Meanwhile, Chris is just downstairs. Like, so at at some point, they're like trying to come to terms with what they're seeing. Yeah. And organize it in their brain and do, you know, make sure that they don't do anything to screw up the scene and they're trying to take everything in. And all of a sudden they hear Chris from downstairs being like, what's going on? And he's just standing there at the door. So they go down and they're like, you can't come in. And Justin Barlow finally goes up to him and he goes, Chris, I, I'm so sorry. They didn't make it. But immediately alarm bells were going off in all of these guys' heads, all of the detectives' heads. Thank God. Okay. Because Chris did not fight to see what was going on. He didn't go upstairs. He was just let them say stand outside. And he's like had been that concerned to call, but he wasn't going, no, I want to see my family. What's going on? Why is there spray paint? Like, he was not asking any questions. He was not fighting them. Like, all three of those men were like, if it was my family, I'd be like, I don't give a shit who you are. I'm going to go up and be with my family. Where are my kids? What's going on? And he was just like, kind of like, okay. And then when he said they didn't make it, he didn't even ask. Like, what do you mean? What does that mean? What do you mean they didn't make it? What happened to them? He didn't say anything. He just started like, crying but in a way that they felt like was not real they said that he was like producing tears kind of but they weren't really falling it was just like it seemed like he had watery eyes and he did not ask what happened are they okay he didn't say anything he just goes i have to call work and my dad and he walked outside so they're like this is very strange this is absolutely not a normal response but at the same time okay Everybody responds differently to grief. We just talked about this in your Patreon episode. Yeah. That sometimes somebody can have a a response and it's just part of their personality. And you have to remember that Sherry said that he was could be withdrawn or remote or vacant seeming. So maybe this is just part of him. So they're like, you know, noting it, but they're not trying to ascribe too much meaning to it at this point. But it just keeps getting weirder. Chris's dad, Ron, arrives. And the law enforcement officers witnessed them talking about Connie's lupus and about something about like a cousin or just like family matters, just really casually. Okay. As if his entire family wasn't just slaughtered and he wasn't asking any questions about this and he's having a casual conversation. So they're thinking, well, maybe he's in shock. So of course they get an ambulance out there to make sure, like get him treated to make sure that he is of an okay mind and body to answer some questions so that they can solve this crime. Yeah, and understanding and processing what's happening. Yes. And when they get him in the ambulance, they realize that he has scratches and a blotch on his right forearm. Mm. When they ask him how he got that, he 
like looks at them like he doesn't understand the question and then just starts like hitting things in the ambulance. But he was on a padded gurney. So he's hitting something that's padded, Mm -hmm. but he's like acting like it's injuring him somehow, but he's not answering the question. And his dad is with him and being like, can you just leave him alone? He just went through a tragedy. And everyone else is like, guilty. Yeah, everyone's like, this is weird. But the biggest thing was that these officers did not immediately know that he had been at the home and then he had left to go to the gym. When he called Justin Barlow, there was an assumption that he had maybe come home from a trip, decided to get a workout in and then come home. Totally. Because the whole reason Justin was like, I'm looking out for your house is because he was traveling all the time. So when they say, where were you coming from and what happened? And he said, well, you know, I got up probably around 540 and I left to go to the gym. No, sir. No, sir. It was just record scratch because they had just been in there with those bodies. And there was absolutely no way that those people had been murdered in under an hour. Yeah. No way. And even Sergeant Don John was feeling really stressed out because he was like, there's some psycho stalker murderer out here in our neighborhood killing entire families. Like he was like ready to leave his post and go to his family to make sure they were okay because he was worried. And when he said that, when he found out he said that, he goes, oh yeah, there is, there is a psycho killer loose, but we've got him right here in the ambulance. Wow. And he's like, I don't need to go home right now because we've, He's right here in the ambulance. He knew that deep in his soul. Yes. That one question was all it took for it to click in. It just wasn't possible. So, yeah, they're definitely going to want to take Chris down to the station and ask him some questions. Yeah, I'd imagine. So after they notified Sherry's devastated mother and brother, which was also very weird because they asked Chris for Sherry's parents' information. Okay. And he said he didn't have it on his phone. How are you going to be married to somebody for 10 years and you don't have your in-laws information on your phone? So then they get him down to the station and it is a steamy hot May morning. There was no air conditioning in this interrogation room. And they said, can we get you anything to get you more comfortable? Do you need a cup of coffee? Do you need a glass of water or anything? He said, actually, I'm really cold. Can you get me a blanket? And they're like, this is very weird because it is actually quite hot in this room. Okay. But then he put it over his arms and shoulders in a way that they think he was trying to cover up the scratches on his arm. Oh, my God. Yeah. He thinks he's so smart. We see right through you. At this point, because of this timeline that he's sticking to, That he continues to say, nope, she was alive when I left. Also, the way he had called Sherry and texted her didn't make sense either because he had called her on his way to the gym as well. And he was saying, I was doing it to wake her up. And it's like, well, you just left the house. Why didn't you shake her awake when you were leaving the house? Hey, babe, I'm leaving for the gym. I'm taking off now. Because he said, well, she was sleeping. She was alive, but she was sleeping. And obviously he would have known whether his house was covered with spray paint when he left yeah or his wife was in rigor mortis come on and he claimed that sherry slept in the nude that's why she was in the nude apparently but there at this point they're like it's definitely him and we just have to figure this out why he would do this also they did pull barlow's video footage and there was nothing no one except for chris went in and out of this house yeah now there they did check out every single person like there was like two guys who walked by walking their dogs they identified the three cars that had driven by between this time 
They followed up on every lead, but there was no one. I mean, his defense attorney could probably say that maybe somebody had gone in through the back because it's only trained in the front. And of course, that's where the basement door was open. But by all accounts, everything is pointing to Chris at this point. But why? Like, what could possibly be the motivation? There was not some big, sizable life insurance policy. There wasn't like he had a ton of money to gain from Sherry's death. He is this supposedly godly guy who works for this ultra-famous preacher. He makes an amazing living. Yeah. They have two adorable children. What could have possibly driven him to this? What could possibly be the motive? Well, anonymous commenter on a blog post that came out breaking the news about the triple homicide that included Sherry Coleman and her two minor children broke the case wide open. They said that there was a motive. And Andy, if we've learned anything in our 161 episodes, if it's not money, what do people kill for? Love. Mm-hmm. Love and lust. Lots of lust. Golden boy Chris Coleman, lackey to Joyce Meyer, had been having a torrid affair for months and months, and he was in love. Well, who was his affair partner? None other than Sherry's lifelong best friend, Tara Lintz. You shut the front door. You really thought it was Joyce, didn't you? No, I was over Joyce. <laughs> I did say no. I yeah. said no. Let's forget about that. That's so fucked up. It is so beyond. I almost put in the beginning a betrayal of faith, love, and friendship, but then I was like, that'll give it away. <gasps> wow. Tara Lintz. She'd been friends with her since she was 11, 12 years old, I think. Wow, that's so sad. It's supremely screwed up, especially because we talk a lot about how if you're in a marriage and your partner cheats, you always have to ascribe the blame to your partner, the one who knew yes. they were in a relationship. Yeah. And that the other person a lot of times maybe don't know that that person's married. They maybe are somehow less blameful. But in this situation, she is, I would say if Chris is 100% to blame, she is like 99%. Yeah. Also, like there's situations like this that happen where like, a husband falls in love with, like, a best friend or whatever, but, like, you don't need to fucking murder the whole family to figure that out. Also, it is your job as a best friend to shut that shit down. Yeah. In my 20s, I heard a story about someone who – it was two couples who were friends and two of the partners fell in love with each other and they had ended up having to, like, ostracize themselves from the friend group and it was, like, they were fully in love and they ended up having a family together and being happy for the rest of their lives, but, like, it broke apart a whole friend group. And I feel like that does happen. But like to have it happen in not only murder of your spouse, but of your beautiful children, like it's your children how can you, as his partner, his future partner, live with yourself with that. I don't think she was in on the plot at all. OK, 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 OK. No, I don't think she was. So we're going to get into it. So we're going to rewind and we are going to go back and talk about how this baffling affair started and how it ended up resulting in this horrible family side. In October of 2008, Chris went with Joyce Meyer to do a three-day conference in Tampa, okay. where Tara still lived. And it seemed like Tara was not having a great time in life. She was divorced. 
She had worked at a strip club briefly. And at the time that she began her affair with Chris, she was cocktail waitressing at a dog track. I think that she was having a hard time. So Sherry wanted to help her friend out and said, look, it seems like at this point in your life, maybe you need some spiritual guidance. You need some help. You need some something inspirational something, to get you something. over the hump. Not my husband. Yeah. And so she said, Joyce Meyer is going to be in Tampa. I can get you tickets to the conference. Maybe you should go hear her speak. And there's also a um, Christian rock artist they were interested in that was going to be there as well. So they're like, you can go. You can see this show. It might be good for you. Like, that's so nice of her. Yes. And Sherry also said jokingly to Chris, hey, I know you're going to Tampa. And you know my friend Tara lives there. Well, I gave her tickets to the show. But I don't really think you should see her because, you know, she has a way with men and still not a great track record with married men. And so I would just really kind of jokingly just preferred if you don't go out of your way to look for Tara while you're at this conference. Shit. So she knew. Unfortunately, that was probably the seed that was planted. He went ahead of schedule because he was supposed to go ahead like he always did to scout out the location and the security plans the first night he gets in who does he call up tara lintz so they go out that first night they drink wine remember he's not supposed to be drinking either they're drinking wine they're having a great time by the time the conference was over they were fully in love they believed themselves to be fully in love from sometime in late october till the beginning of november this is when he decided that he was fully in love with Tara. It seems like Tara, with her good looks and moral bankruptcy, was exactly what Chris was looking for. He said that basically Sherry didn't understand him. She did not care about his job or his happiness or his destiny. She spent too much money. She didn't appreciate him. And Tara gave him everything that he felt Sherry wasn't getting. She complimented him. She told him how amazing he was, how incredible, how handsome. He, she just buttered him up. She said everything he wanted to hear. She was so impressed with his job. She couldn't believe how well he was doing. And... Of course, she gave him some good sex. Yep. They say that uh, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, but I think it might be a little lower. <laughs> yeah. Tara would later say that they did not have sex until mid-December, which I really feel like we're splitting hairs when you're talking about boning uh, your best friend's husband and the father of your best friend's children. And then who ends up killing all of them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it does seem likely that it occurred on November 5th. We know this because Chris would later put in a document that he wrote on his computer that November 5th was the day that Tara, quote, changed my life. So, yeah, I think that it was just she made him feel like a god, like a Greek god, like he was perfect and handsome and some sort of sexual dynamo. And she had him wrapped right around her finger. So what was Tara's deal? Why was she doing this? Well, I think that Tara was somebody who maybe had peaked in high school. She was a good-looking woman who had always gotten by on her looks, and nothing had really panned out for her. And now, 
Maybe she felt like Sherry didn't appreciate him and he's fallen right into her lap. He's got a great job. She was very interested in him, it seems. It seemed like she wanted to land him and marry him right away. And there was also a suggestion, which I didn't mention right at the beginning, was that Sherry's mother and brother always felt that, yes, maybe Tara wasn't a good influence, but it wasn't just that she was a little rough around the edges. It was also that she seemed bizarrely competitive with Sherry and a little jealous that there was a frenemy component to their relationship that Sherry seemed to overlook. And now maybe it was because they're friends on MySpace. I mean, maybe they're friends on Facebook too. Sherry's life, even the people who lived in their neighborhood thought that they had a perfect life. They had two gorgeous kids. She was stunning. Her husband has this high profile job that if you're in this faith, it looks like he is just the most successful of the most successful. She has this life that looks perfect. And if you think about it at the same time, you know, Tara's life isn't going so well. Maybe she did it because she fell in love with Chris. Maybe she did it to get some weird petty revenge on Sherry. It doesn't matter. We don't know why. But it it happened. And the two of them just started texting like teenagers. It was just constant all of the time. He told Joyce Meyer that he needed to stay in town for a couple extra days after the show and gave her some reason so that he could spend more time with Tara. That's how immediate and intense this relationship was. And on the day that he came back, he opened a file on his computer and he wrote all about Tara. I mean, this guy was obsessed. On this document, he listed her birthday, her dog's birthday, her height, weight, brawn, panty size, jean size, her favorite songs, her favorite sports teams, what perfume she wear, the fact that she preferred tulips and pink roses and that she preferred circle diamonds and diamond cross jewelry. Whoa. He even wrote, this is the first time he comes back from being with her, that their future daughter was going to be named Zoe Lynn Coleman. This man is married and he's had a vasectomy. What is he doing? He's acting like he's like a 12-year-old girl. (laughs) It is what he's acting like. like, It really is. Andy Furbance Crean. Like when he dried (laughs) in He's writing in his notebook. They were just on the phone with each other 100% of the time. At some point, the ministry did look at his phone bill because it was very high. And found out that he was texting and calling this Florida number all the time. And one of Joyce Meyer's sons actually called the number and a female answered. And he was like, "Uh oh, because he already knew that they had some sort of marital stuff going on. And so he went to Chris to ask him about it. And Chris said that, oh, well, it's my friend's wife. It's actually my my wife's best friend's husband who I talk to about my marital stuff. So he's been counseling me a lot lately. And when you called, his wife must have just answered. Wow. Liar. Yeah. And so then he got a secret BlackBerry. And that was another reason why his in-law's number wasn't on his BlackBerry mm-hmm. that the police saw was because it was his, his mistress' cell phone. Yeah, it was his mistress' BlackBerry. And 
He was texting and calling Tara and told his dad to call Tara when he went down to the station when he had just murdered yeah. his entire family. And he was sneaking out of Sherry and his children's funeral to call Tara. They found out all of this on his little secret cell phone. So only nine days after the night that he wrote Tara changed his life was when the threatening emails began. Yep. Shortly thereafter, Chris also joined a second gym, not the regular local gym that he went to, but another one in the next county that was over the bridge that he only went to three times when he opened the account a week before the murders, probably to time how long it took him to get home, and then on the morning of the murders. So that means that he was planning the murder of his wife and children for months within two or three weeks of starting a relationship with Tara. Yeah. That's pussy whipped. Yeah. I mean, there was some speculation, but I don't think there was any hard proof that they might have had some flirtatious messages back and forth that could have been deleted. So maybe they were setting up the feeling of getting excited about this trip, that it might have been something that was being looked forward to. But we don't know that for sure. But we know for sure that this was the trip where at least physically the relationship began. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <sighs> so why? Why would he need to kill his entire family instead of just getting a divorce? And Tara was really pushing him to get a divorce. Now, why I don't think she was a part of any of this was because there is proof that he was telling her that he was seeing a divorce attorney. And that he was going to be presenting Sherry with papers. Got it. Okay. And she was bothering him. Like, when are you going to yeah. serve her with papers? Yeah, yeah, What's yeah. going on? When are you going to get divorced? What's happening? This was not planning and plotting. This was her pushing him to divorce Sherry. It seemed like throughout these messages that she would have been fine being a stepmother to these children. I don't think it was top of her mind because I think his dick was top of her mind. But it did not seem like she was opposed to the children. She just wanted him all for herself and she wanted to get married and start a life with him and she wanted him to keep his job. She loved his job. She loved how powerful he was. She loved how much money he made. She wanted to be the new Mrs. Coleman who was the wife of the right-hand man and she wanted to work her way up in the organization too. She thought this would give her some class. And therein lies the problem. She wants the man and the job. He wants the woman. And I think he did like his job, so he wants the job too. But if he divorces his wife and there's any whiff of infidelity, then he doesn't have the job. Yeah, but if you murder your family, you're going to go to jail forever. Yeah, and you also won't have the job. But I think that Chris had been told his entire life that he was special and perfect and he was very entitled and he thought he was a lot cleverer than he actually was. And he really did believe that he could set this whole thing in motion and get away with it because he really believed that he was entitled to God's path for him, which was getting whatever he wanted at whatever cost, apparently. He did try to tell Sherry that he wanted a divorce a couple times that we know about. We talked about how he said, I want to get a divorce. And... At that point, he told her, you're getting in the way of God's path for me. Now, she thought it was about his job, but it was obviously about Tara, that he thought that that was his path. And Sherry even told a friend of hers that when they had this conversation about how he said, I want a divorce, you're getting in the way of my path, and I don't want you around, you got to go, I'm done, that she said, well, 
I'm not going. I'm not leaving. I'm not letting you divorce me. I'm going to fight this. I'm going to fight for our marriage. So what are you going to do? He's like, I'll get rid of you. She's like, what, are you going to kill me? And she told this to a friend. She's like, what is he going to do? What is he? Is he going to fucking kill me? Because he can't. He's not going to kill me. So he's got to figure it out and stay with me. And she said that. Well, in between plotting how to make it look like a crazed Joyce Meyer hater. Yeah. Super fan slash hater. Yeah. Had killed his entire family. Chris had plenty of time to arrange rendezvous with Tara, buy her gifts, including a vibrator and a promise ring. Gross. And film videos of himself masturbating to send to her. Uh, way more gross. <laughs> it's really gross. He took her to the Super Bowl in February of 2009, which, by the way, he told Sherry that he was going with a high school friend. Wow. That the high school friend had gotten tickets and they were going, but he took her. While they were together, Sherry was trying to liven up their relationship and try to save their marriage. So she sent him kind of like a sexy sext. It was like a picture of her. And he was with Tara when he received it. And so she took his phone and wrote back as Chris, honey, you've really got to stop this. I'm not in love with you anymore. Wow. Doesn't that just hurt your heart? Yeah. Yeah, so if Chris was entitled, Tara was wannabe Mrs. Entitled. By February, she had already started a bridal registry, and Chris had opened a joint credit card account for them. So he's mad at Sherry for spending money, but he opens up a credit card account just for his lover so she can buy herself things from him. Yeah, misplaced anger. She also, speaking of entitlements, found out that Sherry had booked a family trip to take the boys to Disney World in July of 2009. And she completely lost it on Chris. That why was Sherry booking a trip when he already told her he wants a divorce? That he says he's serving her with papers. They're not going to have a family trip. There's going to be no trip to Disney World. It's not happening because by July, she's going to be with him. And he's not going to Disney World with his wife, ex-wife. And Chris, it was the only time he gave her some pushback. He said, look, like, I'm still trying to figure out the divorce stuff. It's going to happen. Don't worry. But like, who cares? We'll take the kids to Disney World. And also, it's non-refundable. It's a non-refundable trip. So it's not worth debating about. Well, she said, well, watch me work. And she got on the phone, pretended to be Sherry, and somehow got the trip canceled and refunded. And then she took that credit card that he had given her. She booked a luxury cruise to the Caribbean for just her and Chris the same week he was supposed wow. to go to disney world with his family wow and she said if you can finally serve her divorce papers by may 4th then maybe that cruise will be our honeymoon cruise wow because we can get married that fast i mean also he was doing like real screwed up stuff while he was with joyce for a conference in hawaii he flew tear out to be with him and they shot a sex tape in the hotel room in hawaii i mean it's it's a lot I feel like if I was Joyce Meyer, too, if I found all this shit out that it was like on my dime that he is like having just with her like morality clauses and everything like this is they're shooting a sex tape in the hotel room she provides for her employees so that he can protect her in these cases. It's all egregious. At this point, like I said, Sherry already has her bridal registry. She's got a wedding dress picked out. She is ready to get married to this man. And she gave him a deadline. She's like, if we're going to do everything on this timeline we've been talking about, you need to do it now. And she told him 
that May 4th was the day that he had to dump her by May 4th. Now, Monday, May 4th rolls around and lo and behold, he's not serving her with divorce papers. So she's like, what the hell is going on? And he said to her that he had gotten the papers and that they had had some typos, including some part of her name or something. And so obviously he couldn't serve her if her name was spelled incorrectly. So he had brought the papers back to the attorney. The attorney was working on it and he was going to serve her the very next day. She said, well, you better. And good luck. And then she texted him all night because she was out at a karaoke bar in St. Petersburg. And that was when he was spending the very last night he would ever spend with his family, including his nine and 11 year old children before he brutally murdered all three of them. So the Columbia PD networked with the Tampa PD and Tara was very forthcoming with them. And this is another reason why I think she had no knowledge of what was going on because she was like, well, yeah, Chris is my boyfriend and I know it seems crazy, but he's already separated from his wife and he's supposed to be literally serving her with divorce papers today. So I don't even know what's going on. And she was genuinely shocked when they told her that he had never been to see a divorce attorney. Good. I mean, not, let's not give her too much accolades too because she didn't necessarily leave him. She does not seem like she's involved, but it didn't seem to bother her very much that he killed her his family. I don't know whether she genuinely believed he was innocent, like his parents did. His parents completely believed that he was set up somehow, that it wasn't him. Or if maybe she was the type of person who got off on somebody killing their entire family for her. Either way, not a good look. So now that the police knew of Chris's motive, yeah. they received a search warrant to search his cell phones, his computers, everything obviously around the house. They found a treasure trove of self-made porn and... Just they had like tons and tons of very graphic content, pictures, videos of self-pleasure, videos of them together, just lots and lots and lots of pictures. They also found out that by tracing the IP address of the destroyed Chris profile that, like you called Andy, he had obviously written those messages. So now it all makes sense why the letters stopped coming as soon as Detective Barlow put the video camera in his window because he couldn't be seen delivering his own threatening messages. Yeah. So basically what this came down to was that there was a lot of circumstantial evidence because a defense attorney could also still say that even though it was from his computer, maybe somebody had used his computer to send those threatening messages. They don't have proof that it was literally him typing these messages, even though it's pretty darn close. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence here what they needed to nail down was the exact time of death because that was the one thing that you can't dispute, that there's no way he would have not known his family was dead. So he's clearly lying. And that would, I think, stick out in the minds of a jury. It's the strongest point that they have. So they ended up calling a guy named Dr. Michael Baden. And if his name sounds familiar, it's because he was the star of the HBO series Autopsy that aired from 1994 to 2008. Do you remember that show? I don't think I know that. No. Yeah, he's super duper famous. Dr. Baden studied the evidence and said that there was absolutely no way possible that someone had murdered the Coleman's between 5.40 and 6.40 in the morning. He said at the very latest, at the most conservative possible time, that they had to be murdered no later than 3 in the morning. Oh, come on. And it was much more likely that they had been murdered closer to 11 p.m. on Monday, May 4th. So Tara's deadline may have become 
the last day that Sherry and her children spent on Earth. Dr. Baden attended a conference call with the state's attorney and presented his findings. And with that, they decided they had enough to issue an arrest warrant. In late May, only a couple weeks after the horrific murders, Chris Coleman was arrested. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah, he did not get away with this for very long. These were not perfect murders by any stretch of the imagination. Due to the egregious circumstances, because obviously death penalty cases have a certain number of criteria based on state, he was eligible for the death penalty because of the number of victims and the way the crime had gone down. So Chris was actually provided with two very experienced death penalty lawyers, and he readied himself for trial. While that was happening, the police kept digging for evidence, and one very tenacious detective went through all of Chris's credit card statements because he had also said that he had not bought any spray paint and that it was not in his house and that he didn't own it. So he's like, I don't know where that is. He'd obviously gotten rid of it probably at some point to the gym and back, clearly. So... They went through and they actually found out in February of 2009 that he had spent $3.77 at a hardware store. They went to the hardware store and they had the clerk bring up what the order number was and what he bought. And it was a can of Rust-Oleum spray paint in apple red. Shut up. Jesus. And this idiot had used his credit card and he had signed his name. They were able to pull up the receipt. Of course, yeah. And there was his name. So later at trial, too, a handwriting expert would say that the handwriting on the spray paint also matched Chris's handwriting. Chris's trial began in April of 2011 and concluded in early May, almost exactly two years to the day that he had murdered his entire family. And the trial was a doozy for sure. They played sections of the sex tapes that Tara and Chris had sent each other, which I don't even know what the value of the sex tapes were. At one point, they showed the masturbatory video, but they just blacked out the screen. So you just hear him moaning to completion. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's just some punishment for him, but for everyone involved in this. And Sherry's friends were able to testify about the bruises, about her suspicion of the affair. And it did turn out that even though she was initially suspicious of Joyce, that changed. And she did at some point before her death figure out that it was Tara. Really? Because one of her friends said that she showed her a picture of Tara online and said, that's that's the woman. That's the woman who's sleeping with my husband. So she knew it. So of course they have the spray paint and receipt evidence. Dr. Michael Baden also testified about the timeline. Joyce Meyer did not make an appearance, but her taped deposition was shared. And she did admit that had she known about this affair and a subsequent divorce, he likely would have lost his job. So that was for the prosecution to show their motive because she admitted that, yes, this would be a breach of etiquette to be employed by her company. And then, of course, the big show was Tara Lentz herself, who had to be legally compelled to be there. So they had to subpoena her and threaten her to get her there because she did not want to testify against her lover. And she was still wearing the promise ring when she testified. Wow. No. Yeah. She did not seem especially sorry for her actions. I have to be honest. 
The defense argued that the police had gotten tunnel vision when it came to Chris and they had not chased down any other leads. There isn't a lead. There wasn't. They also said that it was possible, obviously, like I said, for the murderer to have used Chris's computer and set him up for it and that everything was circumstantial. And his handwriting and his credit card. Yes. (laughs) And that, yes, he had an affair, but that makes him a bad husband and not a murderer. Mm -hmm. And then they even tried to throw some blame on Chris's younger brother, Keith, who I think had some sort of prior assault issue potentially or something like, and he had had a, you know, a disagreement with Sherry about something, but he had a perfect alibi. He was hundreds of miles away on a Walmart security camera footage. Like, and he had his, with he was with his girlfriend all night and their kid. I think it was just, he was completely, fully, thoroughly alibi. There's just no way. Well, it did not take the jury very long to find Chris. Guilty. Yeah, that was a pretty easy one. <laughs> Guilty. The judge chose not to give Chris the death penalty, which I'm pretty sure at that point it would have been appealed anyway, because in between the time he killed his family and when he actually went on trial, I guess they had repealed the death penalty in Illinois. So it wasn't going to happen anyhow. But he did instead give Chris life in prison without the possibility of parole. So he was ill-whopped. From reports, Tara and her little promise ring did not stick around to keep him company in prison. I don't know what she's doing. She's apparently moved on with her life. Uh, But at least Chris still has his awful parents who strongly maintain his innocence, going so far as to kick people out of their church if they do not see it their way. (laughs) You have to fully believe that he was framed. They even did an interview with a newspaper reporter in which they essentially blamed Sherry for Chris's affair and for what happened. Okay. Yeah. They said that Sherry never complimented him and that any, you know, emotional problems in his life, like, because they said they went, the investigative reporter went through his personnel files and people at Joyce Meyer had found him withdrawn moody and they were like oh no 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 that's all just stuff sherry said about him so they're not mourning their grandchildren at all the grandchildren didn't even come up they actually talked about how tara had contacted them and how she was now born again and she was a lovely girl who had given their son affection and compliments during a hard time in his life wow okay yeah so that's basically where they fell i don't have anything else to say about them Yeah, I mean, everyone who has looked into this case has similar feelings about the Coleman parents. Uh, So Chris has since appealed his conviction, but they said, nah. Yeah, he was rejected. It's not happening. So he remains in prison where he will likely be until he dies. And then there was a charity that was set up for Sherry and her boys, but there wasn't an article that I found that said that Mario may have been guilty of using some of those funds for things that were not charity, Sherry's brother. Oh, come on, guys. Yeah, I know. So I wish I could direct you guys to a charity, but I'm not really sure where the funds are going at this point or where they lay with those allegations. One of the haunting things about this is that the kids were supposed to sleep over at Vanessa's that night. He had a perfect out to give his children a perfectly reasonable way to be out of the house. It was something that had happened for years and years. It didn't look suspicious. Why? Why did they have to be in the house? Why did they have to die? Michael Cuneo, the author of One Last Kiss, said maybe it was clean slate. 
maybe it was that he felt like they were some extension of Sherry that was getting in the way of his true path that was going forward with Tara. Or maybe it was the narrative. He was trying to sell the narrative of, I'm going to kill your wife and kids. Why would this crazed fan just kill his wife? So maybe he was just selling his story. But in any way, it's devastating. And Michael Cuneo, he ends the book like this, which I thought was like, I don't know. You guys should definitely read his work because I really like the way he wrote because he had an opinion about things, but he also presented the facts. He said when he closed his book, Sherry weighed all of 95 pounds when Chris battered her into submission and strangled her to death. Garrett and Gavin were skinny little kids. After murdering them all, Chris scrawled F.U. in red spray paint on nine-year-old Gavin's bedsheets. He likely would have scrawled something similarly lurid on 11-year-old Garrett's sheets had he not run out of paint. In the end, this is all we really need to know about Chris Coleman. This tells the whole story. Yep. He also wrote this in a footnote, which I thought was very interesting. He said, a rather more personal note might be warranted at this point. During research for various books over the past decade or so, I have attended dozens of exorcisms throughout the United States. I have sat down for lengthy interviews with prisoners convicted of horrible crimes. I've explored the subterranean depths of America while riding freight trains across the country. Not once during this research did I feel that I was in the presence of evil. I did, however, feel the chill of evil while undertaking research for this particular book. I felt it whenever Chris Coleman entered the courtroom and took his place at the defense table. I felt it while observing his bland reactions to the prosecution's evidence. It was ineffable, but also unmistakable. It was the chill of a vacant soul. Wow. Well, in a very rough conclusion to this episode, I think that the moral that I'm going to personally take away from this, as we all should, is don't do your girl like that. Don't mess with your best friend's man. No. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't cheat on your spouse, dude. Just don't do it. I mean, Jesse, you just said all of them. So I'm seconding what you said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, I it's took okay. them all. You should I took them, them all. all but yeah, don't do her dirty. <laughs> Don't do her dirty. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one ends up murdered. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.